Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. Episode two. <laughs> Rocking and rolling. We're here. <laughs> Get used to it. <laughs> so what are you drinking? I'm drinking wine. What are you drinking? I'm also drinking wine. I see. <laughs> so my wine is actually from Argentina. Ooh. Um, it's called Tinto Negro. It's a Malbec from the Yuko Valley. That's, and, that's fancier um, than mine. <laughs> well... <laughs> So, um, we had a wine fest at the lab on Friday. Oh. So, this is leftover wine that I got to take home. Smart, <laughs> smart. Yeah, I'm uh, drinking Dark Horse's Pinot Grigio right now. <laughs> so Love it. <laughs> got it off the shelf at HEB, um, which oh. I don't... Yeah, no, you remember HEBs? Uh, the girl HEB. I do know about the HEB. <laughs> so everyone else that doesn't live in Texas, HEB is like Texas's grocery store. I'd compare it kind of like to a Kroger, you know, like in in terms of quality, or yeah, or maybe even a Harry Harris Teeter. I always want to call it Harry Harry Teeth because <laughs> um, that's what me and my brother used to call it. Um, but it's actually I like. I like H-E-B and you can get the best like handmade tortillas that you could get in any grocery store. they like hand make them and they smell so good. And that's all we eat now. And any, if I move back to the East coast, I'm going to be spoiled basically yeah. because I'm not going to have handmade tortillas anymore. Yeah. Texas <sighs> is the place to be for authentic Mexican. Absolutely. And surprisingly uh, authentic Vietnamese food. Oh, really? Like a third of our town is Vietnamese and um, the restaurant that Anthony Bourdain went to that I talked about in the last episode. Yes. Um, it is a Vietnamese restaurant. They do oh. pho and they do noodle bowls. God and they do bless. some oh, incredible bombies. Like, like we'll knock your socks off. I really miss having pho or pho. Yeah. yeah. It's pronounced pho, right? Mm-hmm. I always want to say pho. Yeah. The the way I learned is uh, there's a place, I think it was Pho 79 or something like that in Virginia Beach. They had one up in Newport News too. That was a good one. Yeah. I do remember that one. They had shirts <laughs> that on the back said it's so fucking good. And that's how I, I was do like, remember those. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So just think like fuck. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. I really miss having some good pho around. So we I'm drinking... Yeah, what are you drinking? 
Yeah, your dark horses. What did you say? Pinot Grigio? Pinot Grigio. Um, and Corey kind of had a crap day today, so I made uh, risotto. So obviously oh. we have to like drink the wine that I used to make the risotto. Otherwise, you know, oh. it's just a waste. Yeah. You know. So. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that. It's a social understanding. My brain has not been working. Love it. Yeah, and uh, I'm going back into quarantine for a week. Um, Did you get exposed? Yes, uh, but I don't. I don't think our cube or like our areas are very much cut off and very separate. Yeah. So I'm just not that worried about it. So yeah. you know, and you have a mask on, right? So. But yes, yeah, so I, I'm going back. I'm going back in. So like, when is this going to be over? <laughs> oh my gosh, I know it's. <laughs> It's so frustrating because for a moment there, there was like a light at the end of the tunnel. And then the second strain that's more contagious Mm -hmm. came around. And now I really just don't even know what's happening anymore. My mom called me the other day and she was like, well, we have like good and bad news. I was like, okay, cool. What is it? And she told me that her and my dad on the same day got exposed to somebody that Mm. tested positive. And so they've been quarantining and they got tested and their test came back negative. So that was the good news of it. But they were playing tennis on Sunday. And then on Tuesday, they had an email or a phone call, whatever it was, that they were exposed and they needed to quarantine. Mm -hmm. And they've been in the house ever since. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, my parents, I'm pretty sure, are in the clear. My brother got diagnosed with COVID like oh, a week and a half ago and oh yeah they've just shunned him they've shunned him to the basement because he was supposed to go back to school and he got tested at school and then they were like oh you're positive go back home to you know your parents who who are have- immunocompromised <laughs> yeah my dad is my mom actually had it in February of last year before oh, wow. this all started yeah. And then your mom, was your mom okay? Like, did she feel like it was just another cold or what'd she say about it? She said it was awful. She didn't have yeah. to go to the hospital or anything, but she had like the most terrible, she had a cough initially. Um, and then she had the most terrible sore throat that she's ever had, you know, didn't even want to swallow her own spit kind of bad. Oh my God. And it like hurt all the way from like her neck down through her chest and um, then she had a high fever for five days and a severe migraine for five days. And as somebody who has severe migraines, I know how, you know, yeah. bad that can be. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, and I was actually in Little Rock at the time at AFS. Uh, so that's the American Fisheries Society annual meeting for that one. It was specifically the Southern Division. So I was going to present um, on my work. And um, so I had no idea what was going on until my my brother called me and was like, I think mom's really sick. (laughs) Cool, Ethan. Thanks. Like we didn't, none of us knew. And I was, we got on planes and this was literally weeks before the pandemic. So I think I was pretty lucky. That is something I was talking about recently, the getting on plane situation, because me and my group of friends all flew from different areas of the states to meet in Charlotte, North Carolina at the beginning of March of 2020. 
Mm -hmm. for my friend's birthday weekend. And that was at the beginning where we had started to hear whispers of this virus coming around and just be more hygienic and disinfect and whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I go on the plane and I'm Lysoling the seats down and everything, but I don't have a mask on. And I was just laughing at it now because I'm like thinking about how we thought that it was transmitted through touch surfaces back then. And so we're doing all that we can to disinfect everything, but we're not actually (laughs) doing the most with what the cause was, which is uh, aerosols and probably could have gotten it, but I didn't. But then after that weekend, we all go back on Sunday to our homes And a week later, one of our friends texted us and said that she's been told to treat her illness as COVID. And she should tell everyone that she was with in the past week that she essentially has COVID. And so (laughs) at the beginning of March, me and all of my friends got, you know, potentially exposed. But I don't think we did because she thinks that she got it in the Denver airport on her return. But close call there. And then I had two or three close calls at work. So I'm over having close calls. I'm over it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm very tired of doing this. Better to be safe than sorry. Problem is, I've got like a thousand flounder coming in, not this week, but next week. What are you studying them for? Baby flounder. Little little teeny babies. The little Uh, boops. (laughs) The little teeny boops. Um, <laughs> I just remember you like the first time I heard you talk like that when we were sampling in Virginia I was like who the fuck are you <laughs> like this girl the little teeny ones so but small. now I do it I'm like thanks Jillian I've, I've, I've infected everyone I know with my my fishy baby speak even Corey my you know <laughs> I'm a man, husband. He does it all the time. And he's like, you did this to me. And I'm like, yeah. The sensitive side. Here's the thing. You got to find joy in this damn world. Somehow I find it in very, very small fish. And Well, especially um, if it's like monotonous work. Mm-hmm. So you definitely have to figure that one out. So yes. yeah, what are you studying with the flounder? Is it like an oil toxicology study? No. So we have a hatchery program. Um, with my organization and they're trying to get uh, that hatchery program off the ground. The problem is flounder are very, very sensitive in their first days of life because they're small, small, but also they go through metamorphosis Mm -hmm. in which, so like little baby flounder when they're just born are um, their eyes are on the same or on different sides of their head, like, like all normal fish are. And then, um, my brain metamorphosize and then they like metamorphosize. <laughs> <laughs> <they> <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Um, they metamorphosize um to where their eye shifts so that they're on the same side of their head. Um, and that involves like reconstructing their entire skull, basically. So they're very vulnerable at that period of time to environmental changes and so they're having a really hard time getting these flounder even through that process so there's a it's a lot of work energetically for them as well so they have to have the right amount of food you can't have too much like ammonia or nitrite or nitrate in the water the temperature's got to be perfect and i mean within a degree which is crazy it's really difficult to figure out how they what conditions are right for them in aquarium systems to 
metamorphose and then go on successfully with their life. So I'm looking at like five different variables that could mm-hmm. potentially affect survival rates. And so I'm getting a bunch of fish to start that. And I can't be in there to tweak the system or do anything. So I'm a little stressed out right now. All right. All right. So I guess we should get, <laughs> let's tangent get this show on the road. <laughs> over. Let's, let's start back in. Okay. So how was your, how was your week this week? Busy. Yeah. And um, not really stressful, just exhausting Mm -hmm. this weekend it was much needed but also this weekend was pretty active so Mm -hmm. I didn't really get to rest all that much yeah um but I learned how to sail this weekend I saw that yeah so that's really fun and I think we're going to start doing more of that so like Saturday morning is going to be like our lady sailing day yeah that's kind of the thing me and my friends are learning how to sail and then get a membership and then we can just go sailing on the weekends. That's freaking cool. <laughs> I, I, even though I have actually done sailing like in an intense way. Um, so when I was an undergrad, I did this thing called sea semester, not semester at sea, which I know a lot of people have heard of. That's just, you go on a cruise boat and take classes. That's not what I did. Um, so it's through Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And basically you go and you take like marine biology classes and oceanography and sailing because you get on a 124 34 I think 134 foot sailboat and you you go on a research cruise basically and every student has their own individual project so we sailed from Hawaii to San Francisco but on a sailboat on a sailboat yeah like a just big, you or you had people with no, you? No, a tall. It's like a tall ship, like a pirate. Oh, okay, tall ship, except it yeah. was modernized. Um, God. Okay, cool. Because I was yeah. like worried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Ooh. it. It was in a lot of ways, you know, what it would have been like back then, minus the scurvy, because we had a ton of fruit the whole time. Um, so I was asking yeah. my dad this question the other day because he sailed a bunch and they sailed around the Chesapeake Bay when he was like in his 20s mm-hmm. and they anchored places to spend the night. But did you guys ever anchor or since you had a lot of people, you just kind of went through the night and took turns sleeping? Yeah. Yeah. So because we were on the open ocean for a majority of the it was a month long trip and we were basically just out in the middle of the Pacific the water, first of all, is way too deep to really anchor in. I mean, it yeah. was like four. I, I one time feet. I checked, it was like it was like four thousand meters deep. Like, oh, that's very deep. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically, we just had a watch cruise that would be scheduled throughout the night, and we had to participate in that as well. So my sleep, my sleep schedule was just completely fucked. <laughs> oh, I bet. So did you guys have GPS on your sailboat or did you have to use the stars? Yeah. So we had GPS because it would be so stupid not to nowadays, especially because celestial navigation is hard. So we did have to learn celestial navigation. It is extremely difficult. Oh, I'm sure. It's a lot of math. And by the time, and I was one of the, the people who did better at it by the time um, I got done calculating like a heading or our, our location. It was, you know, 30 minutes 
into the future. And so we had moved, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it takes, and yeah. like, these sailors back in the day could just calculate it and be like, so I know where we are. That's what I'm always amazed about because yeah. I was at Cabrillo National Monument with one of my friends and we were in the museum and they had all of the old um, navigation mm-hmm. systems, like the little, what are they called? The compasses? Sextant. Like the, yeah, that thing. What is it called? Say it again. A sextant. Yeah, that one. <laughs> and her and I were just geeking out because we just could not fathom how hard that must have been mm-hmm. and how many times people probably got lost. And also the fact that they just left the land to go find other land that they weren't even sure was there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy because you're out there like literally thousands and thousands of miles away from land or other people like there were some days we didn't see a ship yeah day on day for days and days and days and the ships you did see were like the big tankers you know and so um it just really cements how crazy our ancestors were Mm -hmm. (laughs) and coming here in the first place because it's it's really difficult so so I have a different relationship with sailing because I've sailed a tall ship but I am really not comfortable in little sailboats. They, they so turn. that's what we learned on. Yeah. We, we were learning on little Hobie cats. Like yeah. it just had the one sail and not like the little front one. Yeah. Um, and it, it was so small. It didn't have a boom. They, um, just, they turn so quick. I'm like terrified that I'm. It was so fun. It was like a, like a little race car, but like on water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was great. I thought it was so fun. It's kind and of then, a steep learning curve because not oh, only. Oh, 100%. Not only do you got to learn how to like, it's all physics, one. And then two, all of the terminology is different from stuff here. So you got to learn all these new words that mean things. Yeah. <laughs> And so also when I was telling my dad about it, cause when he took sailing lessons, they had an instructor on the boat with them. Mm-hmm. And the way that this course is, is that you have a classroom lesson to kind of go over the terminology and what the lesson is for the day and how to do it, yada, yada, yada. And then they just put you on a boat and say, good luck and like <laughs> send you off. And then we were learning how to tack and jibe. Mm-hmm. And so we were just essentially going in an oval, tacking yeah. and jibing and yeah. taking turns doing that. And then he was on his boat, you know, kind of cruising around and telling us how to fix things. Just yelling at, at one you. point, Essentially. I mean, <laughs> and at one point, at one point, I didn't get enough speed into my tack. So I hit the buoy and he was like, Haley, you're not supposed to hit the buoy. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not trying to, but thanks. <laughs> like, well, I then- knew that. Yeah, like, what do you think I'm trying to do here? Like, no <laughs> shit, bro. Like, <laughs> like I'm literally so new at this. I don't even know what to tell you right now. <laughs> so for uh, a little reference to the, the difference in our, our sail training. To turn our ship completely around, it took 10 to 15 minutes. And you needed a crew of at least, I don't know, five or six to do it oh god <laughs> so <laughs> so i'm used to like the slow and steady you know <laughs> yeah no i'm definitely used to just send it and hope for the best <laughs> yeah the problem is you got to remember like all of the different things you have to do because you've got nine sales that you have to worry about god shifting bless. so that they are correct and and are going to take advantage of the wind to yeah. turn you around so you have to do something to every single one of the sails you have set which is like 
nuts. So, you know, blue water sailing. It's a blast. I it is highly, fun. highly recommend it. Um, so I found a survival story that I thought was from like a week ago because I'm stupid. Um, but it was actually from January, January, 2020, not January, 2021, but I looked it up. So we're going to talk about it real quick. So this is, you know, survival in the news. Um, so this guy in Alaska was basically, uh, living out in a little cabin outside of Anchorage. Um, his name is Tyson Steele. Um, this is giving me into the wild vibes. Yeah, but he just was, he just wanted to go chill out. Like he wasn't, you know, like running from something, find himself. So this is a BBC article. Um, Alaska man survives through three weeks with little food and a shelter. So he's going out to his little cabin that he has. I don't think it had like electricity or anything, but it had um, like, you know, a fireplace and stuff. So, you know, it wasn't, and then he had canned food and stuff and he was just going out. I, I think to just like, you know, be alone and, you know, do whatever. Um, so, but his uh, cabin caught on fire, started with a pretty hasty mistake. He said, I've had wood stoves all my life. I knew you don't do that. So it sent a spark through the chimney, which landed on the roof. So he put a big piece of cardboard in. And so the spark landed on the roof. And so then the fire from the roof basically dripped onto the propane tank. And that's what mm-hmm. fucking exploded. Oh my God. Yeah. So he was able to get out before the propane tank just, you know, just obliterated everything. Obliterated everything. Um, he couldn't save the shelter. He gathered the remaining cans of food that had survived, but like a lot of them had popped open in the heat. And he said everything was tasting like burnt plastic. Um, he spent the first two nights in a snow cave. And then he fashioned a tent from the um, pieces of the shelter that he could use and, and like some kind of, I guess, tarp or something. Um, and so he was stuck out there for three weeks because everyone thought he had gone there to, you know, get away. So anybody who knew where he was, wasn't expecting to hear from him. Um, so he managed to get the attention of a passing helicopter by stamping an SOS sign in the snow and using ash to make the letters stand out so wow. that's how he got rescued that's really great improvisa- improvisation yeah so but like that's just nuts that's why you don't live in alaska don't live in utah don't live in alaska we should start making a list of <laughs> worst states to live in <laughs> so that's my Number new story one. of the weeks but it's the one year anniversary of the survival story. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Yeah. That's that's wild though. So did he make that log cabin himself or was that just someone else's like Airbnb or did he it's, just completely, was it just like BLM land, which is Bureau of Land Management land, it says he bought land. He bought the cabin from a Vietnam War veteran. So he didn't make it, but he, you know. So it was, was his, his, though. Yeah. It wasn't like he just fucked someone's house up on accident. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was my question, really, was how bad did someone have to pay there? Yeah, no, no, it was his. He just, it was his own shit that he fucked up. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so, well, yeah. Sucks, so but could be worse, I guess. Tyson Steele. Um, and then there's one more thing that I kind of want to uh, correct from what we did last week. 
So because we were so focused on getting our freaking stories out last week, we forgot to mention any kind of sources. <laughs> oh, yeah. we did. <laughs> we even talked about it after I did mine. I was like, oh, I'm going to like, I'll do it at the end and then I'll, I'll patch it in somewhere. I didn't do that. <laughs> so I thought like we could kind of remedy that right now. Um, so for my story, which was John Jones and Nutty Putty Cave, um, I use a desert news, um, Emily Morgan, uh, titled man trapped in Utah County's nutty putty cave dies. Um, and then from all that is interesting.com, which is a great website for true crime and like this kind of stuff, um, by William Long, why Utah's nutty putty cave is sealed up, um, with one spelunker inside. And then for the Aaron Ralston story, the source cited is Aaron Ralston and the harrowing true story of 127 hours by Katie Serena from all that is interesting.com. So yeah, uh, we'll be uh, doing that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was making a joke to my roommate the other day because um, for one, I had a Beach Boys song in my head. And then for two, what he said sounded like the Beach Boys lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I had good vibrations stuck in my set in my head. And mm-hmm. he was talking about um, patience. So I was like, can you please make a song called Good Citations and make it a parody of the Beach Boys song, Good Vibrations? I'm <laughs> talking like, about, talking good, about citations. good citations. <laughs> Ooh, pop, pop. <laughs> good, good citations. citations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> So now that we got that little bit of housekeeping off of our plate, um, I'm going to, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some stuff. We're going to talk about a story. Can you give me a region? Uh, The Himalayas. Ooh, like a salt lamp. No, not like a salt lamp, but. (laughs) Coming from that region. (laughs) Where does Himalaya pink, does it come like off on the mountains or is it? Uh, Let's give it a goog. Pink Himalayan salt is made from rock crystals of salt that have been mined from areas close to the Himalayas, often, often in Pakistan. So that's actually pretty far from where, because the Himalayas are, are big. They cover, yeah. they cover Pakistan, India, Nepal, and China, I think, are all the countries. Um, so I couldn't not start this podcast without doing um, an Everest story. Um, because it is one of the most, you know, pinnacles of exploration and uh, kind of success, I guess. It, it was such a, a thing for so long that people, well, mostly European people were obsessed to getting to the top of this thing to say that they conquered the tallest mountain in the world. And a lot of other people want to do the same exact thing and and go there and climb it even to this day even though it's already been quote unquote conquered you know because it's the tallest mountain in the world um and i have a weird relationship with mountain climbing um my dad used to do it pretty significantly not to everest levels mind you but he used to go climb like the 14ers, like Pikes Peak in Colorado, he's climbed Mount Rainier. Um, And so it's like his thing. And I hate it. (laughs) Because it's his thing. No, because my body hates it, you know? (laughs) So yeah, I hate it because I have a chronic illness that basically 
uh, makes my body a piece of shit from time to time um, to the point where sometimes walking around is a little hard because I get dizzy and uh, it's super fun. But I have, I think the tallest mountain I've ever climbed from base to summit was Mount Mitchell in North Carolina. Um, And so that mountain is like 6,000 feet. (laughs) It's not, it's not big, you know, Uh, Everest is uh, 29,029 feet from sea level. It's freaking huge. (laughs) So, so that's kind of my, my pinnacle of mountain climbing. And that was a, that was a bitch to do for me. Of course, the day we decided to do it was in the rain. It literally poured on us all day. <laughs> so, and then we got to the top and there was no view. <laughs> so that's the worst. Yeah. Dude, that's what happened when my friend and I went to Grand Canyon. It, it snowed. First of all, we got there at night and we camped overnight and woke up and it was a blanket of snow. And then we tried to see the Grand Canyon and it was just snowy and foggy. Couldn't see anything. <laughs> and we're like, cool. <laughs> so uh, this is grand. Imagine how terrible it would be if you put all that time and effort into climbing Mount Everest and then you got to the top and you couldn't see anything. I would be disappointed, but I would still feel accomplished. I would be furious personally well you wouldn't be like damn this sucks but like hey I summited Mount Everest and that's a big deal I ain't putting that time and effort well first of all I'm not for no view (laughs) yeah 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 and you'll see why when we kind of get into this so I'm gonna kind of start this by talking about the basics of what it takes to climb Everest Um, and then we're gonna talk about the Rainbow Valley I'm just going to let that simmer. And then we're going to talk about um, the 1996 Everest tragedy. But there is actually a really interesting survival story in that tragedy. Um, And that's the movie that Everest, the movie Everest is based Mm -hmm. off of. Yeah. Which is like an amazing movie. Um, So like I said, the summit of Mount Everest is a little over 29,000 feet from sea level. It sits on the border of Nepal and Tibet. Um, which is in China. Um, It's our highest terrestrial base mountain. Um, And I'm not ignoring Mauna Loa. I know Mauna Loa is actually the tallest mountain in the world if you start from the seafloor and go all the way to the top. Is that what they mean by terrestrial mountain? I was just about to ask because that's that's land-based to peak and not mountain or not uh, water, underwater base to peak. The more you know. Fun fact. Um, and so it rises out of the Kumbu Valley in Nepal um, with um, sharp snow-capped rock pinnacles and wide flowing grinding glaciers spilling off its sides. We've all seen pictures of this. It's surrounded by several other peaks, um, but it still manages to take the center stage and dwarf all of those peaks entirely. And they're all like, I think, on over definitely over 20,000 feet high. So they're all freaking giants as well. So I'm going to screw up some names in this one. So bear with me. (laughs) I'm going to try my best here. You got it. I believe in you. So it's Tibetan name is Chomo Lungma, which means holy mother. And in Nepalese, it's Sagarmatha, which means goddess of the sky. And I think both are far more fitting names than Everest personally, um, which is just the name of the British guy who surveyed it. 
I was going to ask, well, mm-hmm. so what does IRS stand for? <laughs> it's just the name of some guy. <laughs> some white some guy. Some cool goddess name. Like, yeah. Right. Like, holy mother, goddess of the sky. Like, those are beautiful. And then yeah. we're just like, yeah, that guy. He, he Some has- dude. <laughs> <laughs> he just showed up in a country that wasn't his own and decided to well, I'm gonna survey this this fucking guy this fucking guy <laughs> <laughs> um so there's actually a long history behind the summiting of the mountain but that's going to be a story for another episode we're gonna talk about what it takes to climb it now in 2021 cool cool so there are two basic routes up the mountain. There's one on the Nepalese side, and then there's one from the Tibetan side. Um, the Nepalese oh, route, I yeah, didn't know that. There's I two mean, sides to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because cool. it's literally right on the border between China. Yeah, and- makes perfect yeah. sense. I just mm-hmm. would have never thought that for some reason. Yeah, maybe because I'm an idiot. But <laughs> no, I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah. So the Nepalese route is generally considered the easier route and therefore is more often climbed as also can be easier to deal with the like Nepalese government instead of the Chinese government to like get permits and stuff to go do this. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an easy climb though. Um, Can I jump ahead and ask a question? Sure. Is the Nepalese side easier because it is a more gradual incline so you get adjusted to altitude easier? Um, no, I think it's more to do with the fact that the actual climbing is less technical. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's a good question. So first, in order to even get to the mountain itself, you have to take a six-day trek from Kathmandu, which I believe is the capital of Nepal, um, that takes you into the Himalayas in order to allow climbers to climatize to the extreme altitude, even at base camp. So if you just drive up there... You're going to get really freaking sick. You've got to like do the gradual six day deal. Yeah. So if I ever do anything surrounding Everest, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's yeah. where my journey will stop. <laughs> yeah. I'll get to base camp and I'm like, yeah. I'm good. I touched it. I'm here. Yeah. We're good. I saw the mountain. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, that's great. So base camp is located on, for the Nepalese track, is located on the southeast side of the mountain next to the Kumbu Icefall, which is a glacier riddled with seracs and crevices and is just generally really dangerous. If you know anything about like traveling across glaciers, you know that it's, you know, you can fall through a crevice at any time because when it snows, you know, it'll cover all the crevices, but then you just step on it, you go right through. So it's like super dangerous. It's like a booby trap. Yeah. So climbers spend several weeks at base camp just adjusting to the altitude before they begin their climb. What's the elevation at base camp again? Okay. So the altitude at base camp is um, 5,000 meters or 17, a little, it's 17,598 feet. Goodness gracious. So that's, that's already taller than Blake Pike's Peak. I was going to say, because Colorado has 14ers, which are 14,000 feet yeah. of elevation. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Wowie. So that's already taller than some of our tallest mountains that we have uh, in this country. And I did Pikes Peak, but I took the train up to Pikes Peak. Yes, me too. I got altitude sickness. Yeah, I was getting a little bit as well. My quote unquote altitude sickness was me feeling drunk. Like my tongue could not 
figure out what word I wanted to say, even though my brain knew what word yeah. I wanted to say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just got really tired and nauseous. Like I straight up just wanted to lay down and take a nap. I was like, yeah, yeah. that's how my friend got to, cause it was a couple of us out there, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, back to your Everest story. Okay. So first, before we talk about our climb, I would like to talk about the amazingness that are Sherpas because they are the reason anybody has gotten up this damn mountain. They are an ethnic ethnic group of Nepalese that are native to the Himalayas and have served as guides and porters for Western explorers since Western explorers were allowed on the mountain. So these people live here in these conditions all the time. And so their bodies are acclimatized to it. I mean, they don't live on Everest, like on the mountain or anything like that, but they live in the Himalayas, like at these uh, elevations. What do they do for food? Like, are they just legit hunter-gatherer type of families? There's some hunting. There's probably some gathering. A lot of uh, sheep herds, actually, goats and that kind of thing, I believe. Yeah. Uh huh. And now they make all their money off of guiding. A lot of people, a lot of oh. men will become guides and they can make a buttload of money taking people up and down, not just Everest, but a lot of the other, you know, huge ass mountains that are in the Himalayas. Cause it's so not these just Sherpas Everest. are in the base camp then. No, they go with them all the way to the top. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause they're guides. So, okay. Yeah. So they've climbed this mountain maybe, you know, two, three, four times over some of these. That's so badass. Taking. Yes. And we never recognize them. We always recognize the white, the white dudes that, you know, make it to the top. So, um, so like I said, they often hike it twice in one climbing season, you know, with weight and climbing gear and probably two times the weight of what their Western counterparts are often taking. Um, and the reason that they're climbing it, you know, twice or three times is because they go ahead to set things like fixed ropes for the Western explorer explorers or Western hikers that are paying them to, to basically make their ascent to Everest easier. The amount of physical fitness they must have is mm-hmm. just beyond me. Like it's incredible. It's yeah. Incredible. I just, I'm starting to be the empath that I am and put myself in their shoes. And like, that's a lot of physical energy, but also like, think about how many people that they have seen die along the way. Well, and a lot of them have died too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of emotional energy at the same time. And Mm -hmm. that's a lot, that's a lot to go through for a person in their lifetime. And also that's like, that's their norm, Mm -hmm. which is even more wild to me. Yeah, like that's their job. Yeah. And then oh they God. make a ton of money and send it home to their families, you know. So I just want to clarify, <laughs> Western <laughs> climbers would have not gotten to the top of Everest without Sherpas. And they are such a big and underwritten part of every Everest climbing trek and deserve all of the acknowledgement of their hard work on their summit pushes, often doing twice the work of their Western counterparts. So for every non-national who made it to the top, there are like 12 Sherpas behind him that did five times the work. So now that we've established that, um, from base camp, um, we're going up to camp one. So climbers climb up the Kumbu Icefall, which was that big glacier that I uh, talked about earlier with all the crevasses and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So they climb up the Kumbu Icefall to get to camp one at about 6,000 meters from base camp 
um, I don't know what that is in feet. Fuck, I should have looked that up. That's fine. You can just say meters. People can, whatever. We can be the metric system of America on this podcast. I mean, <laughs> we're scientists. We need uh, to we're use scientists. <laughs> Figure it out yourselves. We're not catering to your American bullshit on this podcast. Anyway, so meters. How many meters was it? 6,000 meters. 6,000 meters. Okay. From base camp to that that point. Okay. Um, so this is one of the most dangerous parts of the route um, as ice is constantly shifting and climbers have to look out for those crevasses. And so they also have to deal with seracs, which are tall, unstable pinnacles of ice that can just fall over with a little warming, a little bit of warming and melting. Um, so many climbers climb before sunrise to ensure that the ice is still frozen. Um, and many will link up or tie ropes to each other um, as well in case someone falls into a crevasse, then they can like pull them out of it. Those ice things, what do you call them? Pinnacles? Is that what you said? Uh, pinnacles, Ciroc's. Okay. Like, yeah. are those things that like essentially will stab you if they fall? I don't think they're like icicles. I think they're just more like big old pillars of snow and ice that could crush you. Oh, okay. Bury you if they <laughs> fall on you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so from camp one, climbers make their way up the western coom to um, camp two, which is at the base of the Lhotse face. The western coom is a more gradual glacier valley, probably one of the easier portions of the climb. Um, and from here, the climbers ascend to the Lhotse face on fixed ropes. So basically climbing... Um, with fixed ropes generally comprises of ropes being bolted into the rock face it's essentially like rock climbing for us you know plebes is what it is so not only do you have to actually hike you know up this thing there are sections that you have to do rock climbing to get up everest Fuck that which is why it's it's so difficult and and takes several days to do have you ever been rock climbing yes and i hated it yeah it's hard I fucking hated it. Every minute like of it. Like a rock wall, like a recreational rock wall is hard. I cannot imagine doing something in the wild. <laughs> um, so these fixed ropes are often put up by more experienced climbers and Sherpa um, by basically free, they free climb the wall at the beginning of every climbing season and then ensure that the ropes are safe for the climbers. So they have to free climb and then set the ropes basically. God bless Sherpas. Which is nice. I'm going to keep all the Sherpas in my prayers every night from yes. here on out. Yes. All, all of them. <laughs> they like, need it. And deserve them. it. Yes. <laughs> so at the top um, of the Lhotse face, they reach Camp 3, which is right there. Okay. Um, and Camp 3 is basically a small ledge um, at around... 7,000 meters. So this is only uh, like a thousand meters more than where they were at camp two. Um, But it's just straight up a rock, basically. (laughs) Straight vertical. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, And so they have to sleep basically on the sledge overnight, typically is usually how it works. So they're just literally out on a ledge. So to reach camp four, you have to climb several additional smaller rock bands with fixed ropes. Um, and so that's basically, like, I guess, smaller cliffs. So you hike to the cliff and then you do the fixed ropes to climb up the cliff. And then there's some more cliffs. And so that's how you get to camp four, which is 23,000 feet above sea level. Um, and it's situated on the South Call, which is an exposed wide ridgeline that basically just looks up to Everest Summit. 
And so from camp four, the climbers have to start planning their summit push because they're going to be climbing into an area um, that's called the death zone. And we'll kind of get into a little bit more of what that means in a minute. Um, So Everest climbing season is only a few weeks long in May when conditions are clear enough and the storms um, aren't present. But that doesn't mean that a rogue storm couldn't, you know, happen um, and make prevent climbers from making a summit push because it'd be very difficult. Um, so it's yeah so it's literally what kind of storms like snowstorms obviously because it's higher altitude yeah it's like monsoon storms that blow in and blow i guess i don't know over the mountains and then they turn into snowstorms and then obviously avalanches are a threat Mm -hmm. yeah so you don't want like a ton of snow but you also don't want it to be so warm that the snow's melting because that's what causes falling yeah that's what causes avalanches so, yeah. so it's Aww. like a, it's a very narrow window that they can do it. And it's all very life and death to figure out the timing before you go. So climbers generally begin their summit push around midnight because it will take climbers almost a full day to get to the summit and then back down to camp four. Um, wow. Yeah. So as climbers make their way up, they're entering the death zone at about 26,000 feet. Um, and it takes them, so they wake up at midnight and they go all the way to the summit mm-hmm. and back down in a day. Mm-hmm. God bless. Yes. And that's because once they get above this camp five area right here, they're going to be entering the death zone. Like you're waking up at midnight and your mm-hmm. goal is to do it in 24 hours. So that means you're going to have to sleep and rest at some point because no one can walk for 24 hours straight regardless of elevation yeah so but they do i mean essentially because you can't spend any time in the death zone you have to continually climb like 24 hours to summit everest that's that's how you do it like, there's not really another way around that you can't spend more than three days in the death zone before you risk death or serious serious injury to your body and so let's kind of get into uh what the death zone is so it's this area above um 26 feet um where basically you're not getting enough oxygen um to your body <laughs> um to live um so you're every every step you make you're you're literally you know one step closer to death like you're you're doing a real slow die the entire and time what organ needs a lot of oxygen to function Oh, your brain, you mean? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the one that's going to stop you from misstepping and, and falling thousands of feet to your death? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as climbers make their way up, mind you, dying with every step, um, they are encountered by three steps or small rock walls um, along an ever-narrowing ridge, ever-narrowing ridge line, which... That's an awful... Yeah, so it's basically like 1,000 feet to your death on one side, 1,000 feet on your death to the other side, like if you slide. So it's just a very narrow ridge line that you're um, walking on. Why? I mean, like, I get the thrill of it and the accomplishment and how great you must feel, but I would shit my pants. Because it's a tall rock. (laughs) (laughs) Must climb tall rock. That is a nice rock. I like that rock. That's a nice boulder. I like a boulder. (laughs) So basically the only way to get up these uh, steps is to climb on fixed ropes. So we have the first step and the second step. 
which is also known as the Hillary step. Hillary. Named after someone that died? No, he was the first guy to actually summit Everest. Him and oh. um, so yeah, it was Edmund Hillary, who's a New Zealander, and Tenzing Norgay, who was the Sherpa who came up, and they're both credited for the first summit of Everest, Hillary and cool. Norgay. Um, which I, I like a lot. Um, so the Hillary step is the most challenging um, step. So climbers must make their way across this traverse. It's basically like a knife's edge ridgeline and you just shimmy along it with your back up against the mountain. No, you know what, those movies when they're, you know, going, they're trying to hike across a, a narrow like passage and there's nothing but like a sheer drop on one side and a rock wall behind them. I just got clammy thinking of that. Yes. So Every they, time I watch that, I get clammy. I can't do it. Is that what they're doing? Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, they have ropes <gasps> to keep them if they fall, but essentially. Oh no. Yeah. So they do that, um, and then and then they you know climb up the Hillary step, and then once you get through these challenges, as climbers like to call them, it's just a short push to the top of the mountain. So. <clears throat> Then you you make the summit. Hooray. You've summited. You've done the thing. Take a picture. Hopefully there's a view. (laughs) Hopefully there's a view. (gasps) But the thing is, your bullshit, this shit is not over. It is far from over at this point. You would think it would get easier on the way down. Also, side note, don't you, can't you only spend like literally about five minutes up at the summit? Yes. And then you got to get right back down? Yes. So, so it's, it is quite literally get up, take a breath, take a pic, and yeah. then get your ass back down that mountain. Yes. And yeah, so the actual the descent is probably the more dangerous part of the climb because a you're lot tired. of- Well, you're tired and you've spent like 12 hours in the death zone already. So your body is already starting to break down. You're starting to lose that mental acuity that you had yeah. on the way up. So oh, it is- man by far more dangerous on the way down. So basically you're still dying with every second. The lack of oxygen in your blood basically gives you headaches and nausea, vomiting, hallucination, and it makes it easier for you to get frostbite and can cause cerebral edema, which is swelling of the brain and eventually can result in death. So every footstep you take is like running an entire marathon is how it's been described. So that's, that's what you're going through, especially on the way back down. And a lot of people climb this mountain with oxygen. Yeah. That, that does in make it. In the movies it, and documentaries I've seen, they've always had like an oxygen pack with them. And that does make it easier, but it doesn't save you from these effects completely. I think it's because it's supplemental. It doesn't completely. So it, you're losing more oxygen than your pack can provide you. Essentially. Yeah. I think so. That would make sense. So you're, it's like you've got oxygen, but, and that, that does make it better, but it's, it's still just supplemental. So the climb down is what ends up killing a majority of the climbers. It's much easier to become disoriented, make fatal mistakes, and generally go insane. Um, Many climbers utilize bottled oxygen to make their ascent, um, but running out of oxygen is also always a threat. 
and, and running out of oxygen is something that happens. If, if you're not paying attention or if your mental acuity isn't there and you haven't been checking your gauge or whatever, you may think you have more oxygen than you actually have. And that happens a lot. So because of this, there are hundreds of bodies of dead climbers in the dead death zone on Everest. Mm. Hundreds. Many of them have died near that south, south call route, um, which forces climbers to walk right by them or even climb over them in order to continue their summit push because that's just a very narrow ridge line. It's really sad, but also what a good reminder for the people that are still climbing. Like, mm-hmm. hey, you're not safe no, yet. No, <laughs> nowhere near safe. Far from it, in nowhere fact. Nowhere near safe. Mm-hmm. So many of them are mummified um, because yeah, of- it's so cold, right? Yes. Um, so with, they got, you know, bleached white bones, charcoal faces, you know, but they're still wearing their bright colored climbing gear. So these areas are referred to as the Rainbow Valley because there's so oh many- Oh my God. So many dead bodies in their colorful climbing What's gear. such a sad, like rainbows- God, this is just such a very large mix of emotions. Yeah. Because rainbows are typically associated with happiness. Mm-hmm. On Everest, it's they're like- associated with a large amount of dead bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, that's God. that's an, a big part thanks to the 70s and 80s because we decided that bright colors were the, the way to go on. Uh, <laughs> hey, I still love bright colors. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But <laughs> and I would wear bright colors out because I would prefer to be seen. Yeah. If, you know, some emergency had to happen. But yeah. Um, yeah. That's really sad that that's called Rainbow Valley, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Nepalese government and climbing parties, for most of them, can't bring them back down. And it's because they would be risking their lives and the lives of any retrieval parties to get them because the death zone is just that dangerous oh, and the po- the bodies themselves would be very hard to transport because they're frozen and stiff you can't like move them really you know what i mean do they have a plaque or some sort of monument with a this is going to sound really bad but with a running list of names of people that have passed away on the mountain like at the base camp or like some sort of yeah memorial i'm sure they do i think i've seen a picture of it actually it's i think it's like a stone cairn and then yeah. they have a plaque with all the names and there's all those like tibetan prayer flags like that mm-hmm. are coming oh, off yeah of it. i have seen that actually i think I, they I talking about. yeah i think they have something like that um so these hundreds of bodies stay on the mountain like a gruesome warning to all the climbers um that come after mm-hmm so there are several bodies that serve as markers for of sorts for climbers um, because everybody sees them on the way up. And so then they know how far up they are. Um, oh, I feel like I've seen this in a documentary. Is there like a specific color of a specific dude? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Tell me more. So the most <laughs> famous body is Green Boots. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, who was an Indian climber from 96 who happened to be wearing bright green boots. Um, he came to rest at a cave that many climbers uh, use to take a much shorter rest on the way to their own summit bid. So many climbers sit right next to him um, and what? to take a break. because it's Right a good, next to him? 
Well, that's what he he did. He stopped to take a break on his way back down and then died um, because that's like one of the only areas that you can stop and sit down in like on this part of the climb. So a lot of people but, have to sit next wait, to him. Wait, like he's, oh, because it's still so narrow? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> or it might be that it's like the only sheltered spot from the wind or, you know, there's, there's a lot of. Wait, yeah. so they literally have to sit next to a dead dude. Yeah. And well, it, do we know how long Green Boots was sitting before he died? Um, could have been more than a day, probably a couple of hours. There's some confusion on who the climber actually is from the party because several climbers from that party died that day and it's hard to tell just from his face now right um i was just curious if it was like minutes like he had a heart attack or it was like hours because of oxygen it's it's just it's it's probably you know hours of just you sit down and because you're so exhausted um, lose track of time well you're unable to get back up and you just die of hypothermia or lack oh of my oxygen God. imagine yeah. being so tired but consciously aware that you're so tired and knowing that's how you're gonna die i think you just start slipping off at that point you know and that's part of the yeah. reason why they sit there for so long is because they're just slipping in and out of consciousness so oh, here's boy. a little tidbit to add to this so in 2006 another climber died sitting next to green boots stop it no god jillian (laughs) sitting head down with his arms around his knees frozen in death and here's the worst part was he blue boots blue boots i don't know i don't know what color he was (laughs) they didn't specify okay uh 40 people passed this man while he was still alive his name is david (gasps) sharp oh my god I would be so mad if I was his family. Yeah. Well, we'll did people get... know he was alive, or was yeah. he like, like unconscious alive? He was probably unconscious. Um, but this, you know, spikes moral debate for Everest climbers. This death of Dave Dave Sharp was the guy who died sitting. Next yeah. To so many climbers, like we've said before, spend thousands of their own money on these trips and claim that climbers should be aware that death is a possibility. And it oh, is for not, sure. It's not other people's responsibility to save them. Other climbers. Sherpas, I yes. I kind of disagree. I see right. where their point is, but I right. kind of disagree. Yes. So other people claim that if you see someone in need and you're still in relatively good physical condition yourself, you should help that person. Your summit bit is less important. The other, on the other hand, it's like if you're not in good physical condition, it's better just for you to get down the mountain so you don't die as well. Because sometimes it's like people pass people who are sitting down on the mountain because they're trying to help their friend down. So they're already trying to help somebody else get down without. And that's where I am saying I kind of disagree because I believe in the documentary and I forget what the name of it was, but. And it might not have been even been Everest. It might have been like this, the other mountain that is equivalent to Everest mm-hmm. or second best Everest. But K2? I think so. Mm-hmm. But there there was a documentary of some, like someone was trying to summit this mountain and they were on that rope that you were talking about earlier of how there's mm-hmm. like, you know, people clipped in. One falls, one tries to save them, then they all fall. Yeah. And then it's like, instead of one person dying, it's seven people dying. Yeah. 
And so I do see the point of if you're not in good physical health, don't try to save someone else because then, you know, chances are both of you are dying. Right. Um, so, yeah, but that's just so sad. And I would say, like, if you are in good health and see someone struggling, regardless of the situation, you should try to help them. Yeah. Because at that point, that's an ego thing. Your ego is telling you to summit, but like morals is you have to go save someone right now. (laughs) Well, I think for some people too, it's a money thing. It's one thing if you're rich and you can afford Mm -hmm. it, but if you're poor or poorer or even middle-class and you've put all of your finances into doing this one trip, how hard it would be to turn away from that. I understand that a little bit. Yeah, it's... It's a very hard situation to be in no matter mm-hmm. which way you cut it. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, that's that's another reason why there are so many bodies is because climbers have that kind of moral conflict issue. But the amount of people, you said 40 people passed him. Mm-hmm. Like you would think chances are one of them would have been in fine enough yeah. physical condition to help him out. Yeah. But then also too, like, you know how we were talking about not enough oxygen getting to your brain and mm-hmm. shit going haywire. Also, that's another factor. Like maybe you're not conscious enough to help someone. Yes. You know, like, and that's part of being physically able, but maybe you can't even like, I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe you're so off mentally that you think you're able mm-hmm. to help them and then you really aren't. And then things get way worse too. Or you think they're okay. You know? Yeah, or you think they're okay and you just like leave them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many. Mm, I'm, I'm yeah. sure many people talk to both of these guys and we're like, hey, how you doing? They're like, oh, I just need to sit down. Well, I'm waiting for my buddy. Yeah, because on the down. other end, he's probably like, oh, I'm fine. I just need to sit down for a bit. And we're like, yep. okay, cool, great. And then that to some people, like that's their moral code. It's like, okay, I asked how he was doing. Like I did my yeah. duty. Yep. You know, he said he was fine. Yep. Because it's I'm sure like- you find you confront all kinds of climbers that say the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, on your way up and down, but they make it down. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's it's like how do you really judge if they're okay or not? It's like if someone says they're okay, like you kind of have to trust them, right? Yeah. But they may be mentally out of it. So they may not even know. <laughs> God, I know. It's so complicated. <laughs> oh, yeah. boy. Wow. Yeah, so every stories always throw me for a loop because there is just so much that can happen on Everest. Yes. And it's just, yeah, I it, like you can train all you want, but at the end of the day, I think it really comes down to like God's will. Well, and you, you have to acknowledge that you could die. Like mm-hmm. that is an outcome. So <laughs> there's just more and more bodies piling up and Everest is actually getting more dangerous to climb. And it's not because the actual mountain itself is getting more dangerous. It's because so many people are climbing Everest. It is becoming overcrowded. What? Yes. So inexperienced individuals are flocking to the mountain because it's become more and more accessible to everybody. And it's bogging the summit bids down. Inexperienced people flocking, not okay. Because yeah. then that's going to lead to more deaths, which is going to lead to more bodies piled up, which is going to lead to more trails being blocked off. Right. So eventually people aren't going to be able to summit Everest. I mean, because 
in specific locations in the death zone, there's only room for one person to pass at a time because it's like that narrow ridge line, right? Um, so oh, basically, yeah. they're just creating these big bottlenecks of climbers lining, literally lining up to wait for both experienced and inexperienced climbers to get past those challenges. Which means more time in the death zone. Exactly. So they're sometimes waiting in line for hours on top of Everest. That's just not good all around for yeah. everyone. Yeah. So, and you can go look this up. Um, I actually, you know what? I have a picture of this. You seeing that? That's a line. <gasps> Oh, uh, we'll put this photo up on our Instagram. Absolutely. <laughs> um, oh my God. That's literally a line up to the summit. Probably. That's not even fun anymore. Right. Well, and you can sell now. That's why they call it Rainbow Valley. Look at all their jackets. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I feel like they should have blocked off. I mean, what do I know? Right. But I feel like <laughs> <laughs> they should have blocked off. Before they get to this narrow part. So they just kind of send them up at five minute increments, right? Right. Yeah. Like they do at, haunted, at haunted houses. Yeah. So it's the- like, okay, <laughs> two or three at a time, up, right? So you at least have someone with you, but like yeah. it's at least manageable where you guys can be up there together, take a photo mm-hmm. or whatever, but it's, you're supposed to be up there for five minutes. So it's not a long time. But then you'd have to have the Sherpas up there all freaking day. Like, okay, all right, this group, come on. It's your turn to go. And they're just standing there. Imagine a Sherpa at the summit of Everest, like, for 12 hours a day. Just, like, guiding people back and forth. All right, get together. I need need to get you in the picture. All right, I don't know why. It's the beginnings of a roller coaster ride at Hershey Park. Like, three? All right, come in right here. Like... (laughs) I don't know why I'm giving the Sherpa Boston accent, but I am. All right, guys, get together. (laughs) I ain't got time for this I shit. I love a Sherpa with a Boston accent, though. That's funny. <laughs> hey, you guys. I ain't got time for this shit. <laughs> All right, get out of here. <laughs> get on back down to have it yet. <laughs> get your picture and then get the fuck out. <laughs> I don't want to see your face around here no more. I wonder how <laughs> I wonder how many people are going to comment and be like, that's actually a New Yorker accent. And I'm going to be like, oh, oh 100%. It's like, sorry, I'm from the South. I don't know how to do a Boston accent. <laughs> Y'all, we don't do those kind of accents around here. So if it was, no. a, if it was a Southern Sherpa, they'd be like, all right, bless your heart. Now you got, you got to get some biscuits and gravy down at the tent down there. You just go see. <laughs> <laughs> gravy down like a base camp though <laughs> there's like this southern mama just like brought her chicken fryer up to base camp because her little boy's heading up the mountain it's like a cast iron skillet down making blueberry yeah. cobbler oh <laughs> yes i can love cobbler first of all cobbler is like one of the best desserts in in the world it's, it's my favorite actually <laughs> If it's not cobbler, it's cookies. Cookies, cobbler. I, I gotta say, I'm a big cake person, but the king of all desserts in my eyes is ice cream. Oh, yeah. Um. So at this point, we are at the point where we're going to talk about kind of the start of this 
overcrowding and probably one of the worst um, climbing years or climbing seasons for um, deaths in in history on Everest. What year was this? This was in 1996. Oh, really? So this is the, I believe, the same year Green Boots died. Yeah. Do we tell the listeners how old we would be in 1996? Sure. I would have been four. I would have been three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was the PB. <laughs> so my sources for this are the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer who is a pretty celebrated American author. Um, and then I watched the Everest movie to compare. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's That's actually... Is it yeah, pretty accurate? It is. Um, I mean, there's more, you know, Hollywood drama, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, the actual events are actually pretty accurate, which is cool. That's good. Yeah. I always appreciate when uh, books and movies get it pretty in line with the accuracy. Yes. Um, so this whole ordeal opens up on two commercial climbing parties. So there's, you know, groups of individuals, you know, experienced climbers that, you know, market themselves, be like, I'll take you all up the mountain. They have a whole team of Sherpas with them. It's them and the Sherpas, and they act as the guides for all these people who want to climb the mountain. So these two climbing parties were uh, called Adventure Consultants and Mountain Madness. Um, and these guided expeditions took their clients, who, like I said, paid a significant amount of money for the adventures, basically took them up the mountain and tried to set them up for the easiest and safest summit push possible. Plot um, twist, it was not the easiest. <laughs> well, I mean, compared to doing it by yourself, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, so Adventure Consultants was run by uh, New Zealander uh, mountaineer Rob Hall, and Mountain Madness was run by an American mountaineer, Scott Fisher, who is played by, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, why can't I think of his name when I need to? Google it. Mm, I'm going to be really pissed. Oh, what's his stupid, f- I can see his face, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> 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 his stupid face okay um so i was expecting some like d-list actor no. you can't think of. <laughs> uh, no it's always when you have the pressure put on you you can't come up with the actor names no you're good um both groups had eight clients um including outdoorsman and writer john krakauer who at the time was writing for outside magazine basically on the clusterfuck of commercialism that is that Mount Everest had become at this point. Um, so he was actually there to write about the uh, bogging down of, you know, the actual climbing because there's too many people, but he was also there to climb the mountain as well. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So both groups were somewhat competing for notoriety because a successful summit bid would get them more clients for next season, especially if they didn't lose anybody. So before the teams could even make their summit bids, there were problems awaiting them on the mountain. 
either to due to miscommunication or for some unknown reason, the Sherpa guides had not fixed the ropes up on the balcony, which is one of the rock formation challenges on the South Col that climbers face on the way to the summit. And there were also no fixed ropes on the Hillary step, which is that one that's almost at the summit. The um, one that's narrow. Yes. And it's one person at a time. Yeah. So <clears throat> question. Mm-hmm. Do you think people pay money to summit Everest and they are expecting that the Sherpas are doing pretty much most of the legwork for them and the aspect of putting these ropes in? Mm -hmm. And so then when they're not there, they are like pissed enough to be like one star review. (laughs) (laughs) Just give me, it's like, you know what I mean? yeah, like it's some like, fucking Karen who climbed Mount Everest. The Nepalese no. didn't fix the ropes. I will never trust this organization yeah. again. Because, like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I can see someone being so pissed that they spent that much money and then getting to a spot and they're like, I can't do this. Yeah. I thought this was already supposed to be here for me. Well, so the one thing, though, is these people maybe inexperienced climbing like death zone level mountains, but they're not inexperienced climbers, you know, gotcha. typically. So they can set their own ropes. Well, it's more that like they know the difficulties involved okay. in, in going through something like this. And so unless there's something blatantly wrong, they're not going to like start yelling at the Sherpas because they all know how much work the Sherpas do. Mm-hmm. I would hope. Yeah. Unless you're just you like hope. a, like a rude racist you know what i mean like i i don't think but who knows if somebody's climbed everest and has seen something like that happen let us know <laughs> and did you talk about yelp it review? yeah <laughs> did you do a yelp review of mount everest <laughs> two out of ten would not recommend <laughs> so at the time, the adventure consultant expedition was unaware of these problems, um, so they had made it to South Cole, and they uh, began a summit push on the 10th of May, um, joined by a partial party of the Mountain Madness group, including guides, clients, and Sherpas. Um, so the lack of fixed ropes caused several one-hour delays in which the guides had to install ropes and guidelines before their clients could safely climb. So this caused that bottleneck for the climbing parties in which the climbers were forced to sit in the snow and wait for the guides. So as a reminder, every hour in the death zone brings climbers closer to death. Most of the clients and guides were climbing with bottled oxygen, but a few chose to make their climb without. And a lot of people do so because it's like a big macho ego thing. Like, well, I did it without oxygen, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, but they were that they were sitting in snow waiting and translation to me as a person Mm -hmm. frostbite oh yeah definitely which i am so grossed out by frostbite me too i it it's just it anything where your skin is decayed so like frostbite or like burning or anything where it's like disfigured i just it gives me so much heebie-jeebies hard nope yeah like i'm getting out of there anything like have you seen those uh i don't know like documentaries where they use maggots to eat the dead flesh that shit makes me want to vomit (laughs) yeah so frostbite fucking city um so a russian guide named antoli bork borkreev 
Borkreef. We're going to go with Borkreef, um, who was supposedly leading the Mountain Mountain Madness Team Summit bid, reached the summit first at about one in the afternoon. Remember, they're starting at midnight. They they're the first to reach the summit at about one in the afternoon. So this is thirteen hours. Yes. Um, so he remained at the summit for an hour and a half, helping clients reach the summit. Uh, many climbers, including the adventure consultant crew, did not reach the summit until 2 p.m., which was the supposed last safe time for them to turn around and head back to Camp 4 before oh, no. it started getting dark. So no. that was kind of the time they had set before they went up the mountain was 2 p.m. was kind of the last safe time. Um, so many of the adventure consultant clients and Sherpas, including Krakauer and the lead Sherpa Ang Dorji, began their descent around 3 p.m. as the snow began to fall. Mm -hmm. So there was weather moving in too. Buddy. Yeah. So Hall was still on the mountain and that's the guy who was leading the adventure consultant crew. Um, so he was still on the mountain helping an exhausted client um, who was a school teacher, Doug Hansen, um, and he was helping him reach the top. So Hall had tried to make Hansen turn back, but Hansen had literally spent all of his money trying to climb Everest. Um, he had made an unsuccessful summit attempt the year before, and so Hall felt that it was his duty to help Hanson reach the summit because this guy's a school teacher like he does not make a lot of money i understand that but going back to what we said about how you have to understand like you are risking death climbing everest mm -hmm. i feel like you also have to understand like you are risking losing a lot of money con like if you're not okay to summit and turn yeah. around like you're yeah. risking a lot of money mm-hmm I mean, you risk a summit bid every single time. It's There's no guarantee you're going to make it to the summit. And honestly, is anything worth your life to that extent? Like, that's yeah. me personally. I can take myself out of the situation and see how to do that and risk their life for it. But I just, being on there would be enough for me. Like, reaching, like, doing the extent, being in the death zone, reaching a close point, I'd be like, okay spent 30 grand got close <laughs> when you say that here at sea level in the florida keys would you feel that way if you were on the mountain i mean it would suck but i think after time i would kind of still feel grateful that i would be alive well yeah so did this okay so it's school teacher and sherpa no he was a new zealander uh okay oh climbing guide yeah okay so yeah. They went to the summit because school teacher had a, a, a mission to yes. accomplish. Yes. Got it. So the weather began to worsen. An unexpected blizzard had hit the southwest face of Everest, limiting visibility as the sun began to set. Um, so Fisher, a.k.a. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, who was head of the Mountain Madness crew, was becoming sick upon his descent, as was Doug Hansen, the school teacher. Um, both became too tired to move on and stopped. Um, Frischer was with his Sherpa, Makala Gao, and um, Hansen was with 
um, the adventure consultant leader hall. Um, so Borkreev, the uh, Russian um, guide, on the other hand, had descended to camp six before all of his clients, reaching the camp at 5 p.m. His reasoning for returning before his clients who were struggling down the slope was because he wanted to get more bottled oxygen, um, but it was more likely because he had summited himself without oxygen and he was running out of strength to help his clients descend. Um, so there's a lot of contention between the author Krakauer who witnessed all of this and survived it and the climber Borkreve for the exact reason behind his descent before his clients. Um, and this drama has carried on. They've both written books and all kinds of stuff, basically, you know, calling each other out. Um, but attack via novel. Yeah. I personally side with Krakauer on this one um, because Borkreve was hired to help his clients and should have climbed with oxygen in order to make sure they return safely. I don't care how big your ego is. I just, if you're getting, if you're getting hired to do this kind of thing, your clients should be your utmost, you know, responsibility or Yeah. I mean, that you know? goes back to us saying like, if you're climbing Everest, you are accepting responsibility that you might die. If you are a guide leading people up Everest, you are accepting responsibility that you are responsible for those people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like you have the highest knowledge of this mountain. You're leading them. Something goes wrong. Like high chance it's in your control that right. you could have fixed it. Well, and if you had just climbed with oxygen, you wouldn't have any criticism. You know what I being mean? Prepared. That Yeah. It's like yeah. being prepared. Like, yeah what's that saying failing to prepare is preparing to fail mm -hmm. like yeah yeah and i honestly i i side i side with Krakauer on this one just because i think there's a lot of, that goes into the whole ego of summiting without oxygen and i think if you're the client then go for it but if you are the guide then be responsible so at this point um, visibility was so low that several climbers from both teams became lost on the south call within oh, a couple hundred feet of camp four. So that's how low visibility was. Wow. So they wandered around on the call until midnight, um, missing the camp and also missing the very dangerous South call slopes that would have just sent them tumbling thousands of feet to their deaths. Somehow wow. they didn't, that didn't happen. Um, eventually oh they God. all, yeah, yeah. So this what, did they end up at base three? No, this is uh, Camp 4. So I'm saying, like, so they passed Camp 4, they passed all those, like... No, they they were they were close to Camp 4 coming down the mountain. They didn't reach Camp 4 yet. Oh, yeah. I heard that wrong. I thought you said, like, they passed it because no, 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 it was no. the weather was bad. They missed it. No, they just missed the camp, like, getting to the camp, I guess. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So basically, eventually they all kind of huddled down for warmth to wait out the storm. And so this is when death by hypothermia becomes the most risky. People often begin to report, you know, beginning to feel warm and tired in late stage hypothermia. And I got to say, it would be awfully tempting to give in to that because I love sleep and I love being warm. <laughs> Yeah, no. I would be done early stage of hypothermia. <laughs> I don't even 
what is late stage? I don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch, I don't know her. (laughs) I don't want to know her either. (laughs) Um, Near midnight, the weather clears. So this is midnight, 24 hours after they started the push to the summit. So near midnight, the weather cleared and the climbers could see Camp Fort. So some of the clients and guides set off to find help because they needed more people to get everybody down. Um, So whatever happened to what we just talked about, about people not helping each other down the mountain? It often does happen, but occasionally it doesn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, And in this case, you know, these client or these guides were like, you know, well, we are responsible for these people. So, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're able-bodied, you know, and they already made the summit. So at Mm -hmm. this point, there's no moral, you know, qualms about like, well, I'd rather go to the summit. Like at this point, they're like, we just got to save as many people as we can. There's no, you know what I mean? God, I hope I'm never in a position where I have to be like picking and choosing who I save. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what happened with this. So other guides stayed with the less less fit climbers um, and just started shouting for rescuers, you know, to the other people who were at Camp 5. So at this point, Borkreve made his way out to help them. He found a small huddled group of clients um, and chose to help his three clients from the Mountain Madness expedition, but um, left an adventure consultant client, uh, Yasuko Namba, who was uh, one of the few female climbers on the mountain. Um, and she was uh, a Japanese mountain climber. And I believe she was actually pretty old um, in comparison to everybody else, but she was like super fit and, and knew what she was doing. But she was so unresponsive that he had to leave her in order to help the other three. Um, he what? considered her too far gone to save. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another client, um, who's a Texan, woohoo, um, Beck Weathers was also nearby and in terrible condition, but Borkreve didn't see him. So, you know, because oh it was God. dark, you know. Yeah, but imagine peeing him and seeing someone pass you. Mm-hmm. And he might have been too weak to call out for help, or maybe he was unconscious at the yeah. time. Like his call for help is a whisper. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So this is a pretty common thing that happens on Death Zone Mountains. Um, in Borkri's defense, in this particular case, it is often more dangerous to try to help a client who is near death down a mountain, as it is likely that a climber close to death won't actually make it. And this puts the helping climber at great risk because it's likely this descent will be extremely slow so it's likely that Borkreef saw his three healthier clients and decided to save all four of them instead of risking that all five people perish. Um, so Namba it's and Beck, decision. I mean, you know, you have to. Yeah. Kinds of, yeah. So Namba and Beck were the only climbers left on the South Col at this point. And then Frischer, who's the head of Mountain Madness, his Sherpa gal. Hall, who was the head of Adventure Consultants and the teacher, Doug Hansen, were stranded farther up the mountain, still in the death zone. Right? Still on the death zone. Mm-hmm. So those are the those are the 
uh, people left on the mountain at this point. So essentially, like, they're just left for dead. Right. Because at this point, everybody has climbed the mountain, right? And, and they're all exhausted. And the guides have been going up and down trying to save people. At some point, That's you've got to... to the guides, too. Like, right. you can't tell that all the time. Right. At some point, you've got to take a rest because you're going to just be another casualty. And then you're not going to be able to save anybody else. Oh, God. Right. What a so, hard situation to be in. Yeah. So the morning of May 11th um, at 4.30, Hall radioed base camp to inform them um, that someone had reached them with supplementary oxygen. It was another guide that was part of that company um, named Harris, um, but that Doug Hansen was dead. And then Harris, the guy who had brought them oxygen, had disappeared during the night. He didn't know where that person was. Oh, he fell off. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, in the movie, they show him, like, falling off, but the, they don't actually know what happened to him. No I mean, like, that's fair to say. Yeah. But given the knowledge right. of the situation. Plus the fact that they didn't find He fell him. off. <laughs> right. Plus the fact that they didn't find his body in later years on the trail, I think. He fell off. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. So Hall was no longer breathing bottled oxygen because the regulator was iced up. Oh my God. That was something I never even thought about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, oh my God. I think what happened is enough moisture got in the regulator that the water froze, but that <gasps> you couldn't get any oxygen to you oh man yeah okay so, so this is gonna be a dumb question i'm very mm -hmm. aware that this is dumb but <laughs> <laughs> so typically your breath is warmer right mm -hmm. which is why you see like the fog and whatnot could they not breathe into the regulator long enough to where it melts or no i don't you know maybe I don't know where the freezing happened. Like it could have been farther down where maybe he couldn't warm it up enough. I don't know. Like rub it together in his hands. I don't know the specifics about this sorry, I know. situation. I know. Nobody does. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. I just, <laughs> no, I'm a very detailed oriented person. So I'm yeah. just like, like what are that's a good point though. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think anybody knows the in the answer to that question. But that really sucks that his shit froze. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because I'm like, I get nervous when I laugh. Yeah. Or I, I think... laugh when I'm nervous. And that's what this is. It's, yeah. It's nervous laughing. <laughs> Very nervous laughing. Nervous laughing. So speaking yeah. of nerves, this. Yeah. So Hall had survived over 24 hours in the death zone of Everest in a blizzard which is nuts. Um, by Wait, say that again? He survived over 24 hours? Yeah, in the death zone. In the death zone. Mm -hmm. Or they say you shouldn't stay there for more than two days. Yeah. But he so was also... And it was also in a blizzard, so, like, he's, you know, losing energy just because he's cold. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So by 9 a.m., he was attempting descent, but his hands were so frostbitten it was difficult for him to climb on the ropes. He oh, was, no. Yeah. He was still stranded, and there was no hope of rescue. <gasps> he, oh. Well, yeah. God. Yeah, so he was basically on his own at this point because 
conditions are too dangerous for guides to even get to them. No hope for rescue. That's something that no one wants to hear. No. So um, he was able to actually call base camp in the afternoon and then base camp put him through to his wife. Um, and oh, this, stop it. Stop. This yeah. is getting like too yeah. much. Keep going though. Mm, I don't like it. <laughs> in their last communication, they chose a name for their unborn baby and Hall oh. told her, sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. Oh, stop. Mm-hmm. So they're unborn child yeah what name was it oh her name was sarah oh that's the name they chose cute name um, shout but out an, to all our sarahs out shout there. out to all sarahs um but unfortunately he died alone thousands of miles away from his family on one of the most isolated and inhospitable places in the world but the help he gave his clients on the way up likely saved their lives, even as they were stranded on the South Call. That's so, so sad. Yeah. So there's there's our second death. Um, we lost Doug, the teacher, and Robert Hall, the um, expert guide and climber. Oh, boy. But there is some hope for the others still stranded on the South Call. And... Some of them freaking survive this ordeal. Oh, my God. Did they um, write their own book? Oh, yeah. I haven't read his, though, but we'll get into this. Okay, so okay. Uh, the same morning, uh, Stuart H- Hutchinson, which was another client of Hall's who had made it to Camp 5 uh, or Camp 4, uh, went looking for survivors on the South Call. Uh, he found Namba and Weathers. Remember, they were basically left for dead. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both severely frostbitten, unconscious, and unable to move, but still alive. God. Still alive. Unfortunately, Hutchinson left them there since they were in no condition to physically move themselves and he could not carry them. He consulted with one of the Sherpas and they determined that they could not be saved by the survivors at Camp 4 as almost all of the survivors and guides and Sherpas were so exhausted by the ordeal themselves that to launch a rescue mission would probably result in even more death. So they decided that it was time for nature to take its course um, and that I'm sure was a very difficult decision to make. Yeah. So nature did take its course for Namba, but for Beck Weathers, it God did. bless. Are you kidding me? He survived it? He survived. Oh my God. So this man regained consciousness and walked back into camp under his oh. own power. Oh my God. He was still very weak, extremely frostbitten, but this man saved his own damn life. And See, that's what I'm talking about, as in like God's will. Mm-hmm. When you start climbing this shit, you can train all you want. At the end of the day, it's God's will. Oh yeah, take it out or not. I mean, like I'm not religious, but there is something to that, especially in these situations. Like I- that, yeah, no, that right there. I, yeah, yeah. So, that's not luck. I can no. tell you that. No. So the other survivors set up a tent for him and provided him oxygen immediately. So the following day, um, they were going to head back down to a lower camp, Camp 3. 
he had been on oxygen all night. Um, but he was almost abandoned again. Are you fucking kidding me? I am not. His tent had collapsed overnight and the climbers were starting to evacuate. Um, and so they thought that he was dead, I guess. I'm not this sure This guy why. has a different type of bad luck. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Um, but uh, John Krakauer, the author, uh, who had actually made it up to the summit and back down safely, had found weathers and found that he could mostly move under his own power, even though he was still weak and frostbitten. So it took eight climbers to get weathers down to camp two due to the fact that his feet and hands were like extremely frostbitten. It took that many people to get him down. So that's part of the reason why they likely were planning on evacuating without him because it it was again in that situation where they're like, well, he can't move under his own power, you know? So let's just leave him. Because it's, I mean, there's I get it. other people who are exhausted uh, and yeah. Oh, I right. get it. It just sucks. So let's talk a little bit about frostbite. So it turns out I did that research for this episode. i <laughs> 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 so many of these. Oh my God. Um, so basically what frostbite does is it freezes your skin like, like ice. Uh, and then the tissue begins blistering and drying um, so with superficial levels of soft frostbite, the affected area can recover um, and the skin can grow back. In later stages, the tissue becomes black and actually mummifies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's, you know, the frostbite we all know and love, right? The mummified kind. Yeah. <laughs> the one, you know, you think of when you think of frostbite. Mm-hmm. Um, and this usually requires amputation. Um, in Beck's case, he got fourth degree frostbite, which not only affects your skin, but the tissue below, the muscle, the tendon, and the bone. What? That's mm-hmm. a thing? The mm-hmm. bone? Mm-hmm. Oh, I just thought it was like muscle and tissue. Mm-mm. I guess it can get into your bones too. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So this means he could no longer climb on his own and he was stuck at camp too, which is above the Kumbu Icefall. So that's that really dangerous glacier area. It involves and requires some ice climbing. So you have to be able to go down it um, on your yeah. own, like under your own power. But yeah. in another twist. But wait, ne- there's more. <laughs> they, well, wait, there's more. Um, the Nepalese military sent a helicopter up to Camp 2, which has never been done before because at those high altitudes it was basically the helicopter's limit for flight i did not know that they had a a limit for flight it has something to do with the air pressure like being able to actually support the helicopter okay with with planes they can do whatever the hell they want um but yeah i guess it's like the lift and the way that the air is propelled and yeah Because, like, I guess there's less pressure, so the air is lighter up there. Makes sense. Yeah. It's a physics thing, for sure. It's a physics thing. <laughs> I didn't I never do took well. physics, so. I got a D in physics, too. It's the only class I've ever gotten a D in in my life, so. <laughs> well, physics was the type of class in college, like, and I only know this because of my friends, that you just had to pass. Right. So. Right. Got a D, it's fine. Yeah, I did. D's that was me with OCHEM, too. I was like, I just need to pass it. Fine, get a D. <laughs> D's get to Greece. <laughs> so this camp two was basically at the helicopter's limit for flight, but there was no way a small aircraft, like an airplane, could land at 
camp too there was not enough room for them to land like an airplane to land so it was a helicopter or nothing right so that probably answers a lot of listeners questions though right because i'm sure people were listening like why didn't they just get a helivac like yeah out there because they literally cannot go out there right 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 um so the helicopter nearly crashed on its way up but they were able to get beck weathers down to base camp where he would be further evacuated to Kathmandu. um although weather survived he lost his nose his right hand half of his right forearm and all of the fingers on his left hand to frostbite so Ooh. yeah um, I do actually have pictures of him post. Uh, Are you going to share it? Share your screen. Let me see. Okay. So this is everybody. Um, oh. I believe this is John Krakauer right here. Okay. He really looks like one of my friends I went to college with. He's got some fucking snazzy 80s pants that I just love. Um, this is Robert Hall here. He's cute. Yeah, he's a cutie. Definitely. Uh, this is... Uh, namba the female japanese climber she's adorable and i think she was like in her 50s yeah um and i believe this gentleman back here is beck weathers okay so he's just a big like texan dude like he looks texan yeah he does (laughs) and when i say he looks texan i mean he looks tall burly brown-haired scruffy like yes texan texan yes so this is him after with his wife and his son oh wow wow yeah like he's even got some stuff up on his cheeks yeah so all in all including the mountain madness and adventure consultant expeditions eight people from four expeditions died on everest that season and these were led by some of the most prepared climbers with modern climbing equipment and all kinds of help from Sherpa climbers. Um, But Mother Nature showed up strong with the blizzard conditions and just like the general insanity of the death zone, you know, contributed a lot to this. But in a lot of it, it was just uh, human miscalculation and crowding that caused these early delays before they even made it to the summit on the 10th that also contributed to why there were so many people still stranded on the mountain so late in the day. Um, So that was the story of the 1996 uh, Mount Everest season disaster that resulted in the deaths of Andrew Harris, who is a guide for adventure consultants, Doug Hansen, who was the school teacher and a client, Rob Hall, who was the expedition leader of adventure consultants, Yasuko Namba, who was the another client, Japanese um, client of adventure consultants, Scott Fisher, um, the guide and expedition leader of Mountain Madness, um, Sub- Subidar Salmania, um, Lance Morup, and Tiswang Paul Jor. And they were all um, on that Indian expedition that Green Boots was a part of, but they're not sure who Green Boots is. Wow. That mm-hmm. was going to be, that was going to be my other question was, did they know Green Boots? They knew he was on that Indian expedition, but they're not sure who he is Mm -hmm. so he hasn't been identified to this day is that correct i don't i don't know if he has been officially identified um because you would think that his family members would kind of put two and two together after a couple years right you would think 
So they think it's either between to swing Paul Jor or Dorji Morup, um, but they're not sure. Wow, that's sad. Yeah, because I'm sure if two, both of them went to Everest that same time frame and they but both I, died on the mountain, like they yeah. can't. They must have had the same exact outfit, though. You know what I mean? Well, like they were the same exact build. Yeah, I don't know. So, so that's. But there were survivors, Beckweathers being one of them, and John Krakauer, um, the author uh, who wrote the book Into Thin Air, among several other books. Um, so he's he's pretty uh, well written as far as you know American literature is concerned. So my sources for this besides Into Thin Air um, were As Everest Melts, Bodies Are Emerging from the Ice by Badra Sharma and Kai Schultz um, of the New York Times. Um, and then The Bodies of Dead Climbers on Everest Are Serving as Guideposts uh, by Kate Serena of allthatisinteresting.com. Kate Serena also did Aaron Ralston's mm-hmm. that too. So she um, must be pretty well-versed in these types of things. I know. She, uh, all that is interesting.com has all kinds of really good information on these sorts of stories as well as like true crime kind of stuff. So I go on there a lot when I need extra information, you know, that my main source can't give. But in this case, uh, Into Thin Air had a lot of the information that I needed um, just because he went really in depth into all of this different stuff. That's first person. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he experienced it all himself. So if you're looking for a book to rock you to sleep, <laughs> Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, please sponsor us. <laughs> all right. Just casual shout out at the end of each podcast. <laughs> please sponsor us. <laughs> so uh, we've kind of come to the time in this podcast where we talk about the good things that happened to us this week. Yeah. What yeah. were the good things that happened to you this week? Um, well, I actually submitted uh, a round of revisions on a manuscript. And oh, good. Yeah. So it's the first manuscript that I've been the like lead author on. And for um, our listeners, can you kind of give a background to how important this is in the science world? Yeah. So in order to become, you know, a published scientist, you have to, you know, do your experiment, you know, do data analysis of everything you've collected um, and then write it up um, in a scientific uh, publication. But then you have to submit it to a paper and that uh, the reviewers on that paper have to deem you, you know, worthy enough basically to uh, get accepted into that that paper and it involves you know basically scrutinizing and nitpicking all of all of your scientific process to make sure that it's essentially kosher on top of you know making sure you're not a shit writer um, so it's a it, the point is it's it's a ton of work it's very stressful but I made it past the first round of reviews um, which is good um, mm-hmm. So hopefully, hopefully it'll get accepted, um, but there's no guarantees in this life, but I got that done. So I'm a lot less stressed because I got that off my plate and I can just not think about it for a month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got your manuscript accepted it's for the not, first round. Uh, yeah. I got through the first round of revision, so it hasn't mm-hmm. been outright rejected. <laughs> right. So we're still good. We're still yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. 
So what was a happy thing that happened to you this week? Um, well, I was really happy that I, I made it to aerial yoga on Monday night because mm-hmm. typically I would go on Saturdays and as of recent, I've been the only one showing up on Saturday. So she's not getting a lot of flow. So she's just going to cut Saturdays out. Mm-hmm. And like Mondays are at 6 p.m. And that's like right after work. And it's like 30 minutes away. So it's kind of yeah. hard to get down there, especially when I have a dog and mm-hmm. <laughs> away from home all day. So I, it's 30 minutes from work, but it's about an hour from home. And so it's like, I'll get home late. But aerial, aerial yoga is something that I like doing and it is a really good way for me to stretch my body out and just decompress. Yeah. So I make it a point to go at least once a week. So I was happy that I went to that on Monday. I think it's so important to have that kind of relaxing thing. For me, it's also uh, yoga as well because it's one of the few things I can do with my chronic illness that doesn't make Mm. me want to pass out, surprisingly. Um, I obviously don't do aerial because uh, I don't want to fall. <laughs> you don't fall though. And if you do fall, like you pretty much catch yourself the way mm-hmm. that you're wrapped up in it. Yeah. Um, and if you have back problems, like I do, like typically. Yes. So backstory of my back problems is my lower vertebrae are pretty much like compacted. And mm-hmm. so like my lower back always hurts for the most part or it's stiff. Yeah. And so when I do aerial yoga and I'm upside down and it's the spinal decompression, that really helps me. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice. All right. So good things are coming. So uh, you can find us on Mother Nature Will Kill You podcast on Instagram. And MNWKY podcast on Twitter. Until then, stay safe. But most of all, stay curious, explorers.